I want to let you know if you are visiting with us, even if you've been here before, uh, if you have never filled out one of these little cards here, we would love it if you would do that. Uh, that just lets us uh, keep in touch with you. We send out announcements each week uh, via automated phone call and email, and uh, we would just love for you to know what's going on, and, and we want you to feel a part, and not just feel a part, but we want you to be a part of what we're doing. So, in that vein, just in case there's some of you in here who might not receive those announcements, there's a couple things coming up that I really want to highlight because I think they're really important. The first thing is we do an event every year. We've been doing it for the last seven. I think maybe we skipped one. So I think this is our sixth year doing it. But we are doing a thing called the Harvest Hoedown. And I think it's our best event that we do every year. We do it. It's always the day before Columbus Day, so it'll be October 7th if you want to write that down. And uh, what we do is we do line dancing, we do a big, you know, barbecue meal, um, we have uh, games for the kids, hay rides, um, we might even have a bluegrass band this year, we're not sure about that, but anyway, it's just, a, we just have a great time, it's always a blast, we have a huge crowd, we would love for you to be there. Also, that is a great opportunity, maybe you've got a friend, maybe you're excited about what's going on here at church, and you would love to invite a friend, but you don't feel like they're quite ready for church, that'd be a great thing to invite them to. Uh, you know, we pray for a meal, and that's about the extent of, it's not like a church service, or anything like that. It's just a chance to get people here uh, near the building because that's a big step for some people to be near a church or in a church. To them, that's a big step. And so that's a great way to just kind of reach out to some people who, uh, who hopefully eventually will be able to get to church and tell them about God. Um, also, uh, next week, I want to let you know, this year we're going to do a fundraiser for that event to kind of offset the cost of that. And so next Sunday, if you want to stick around, um, we have uh, our encounter service. That's what we're doing right now. After that, we have what we call our Commit Sunday School classes. We'd love for you to check those out sometime. Uh, there's a list of them in your bulletin. Uh, but then after that, about noon or maybe 11.45, we're going to have a lunch here. And uh, we're going to serve the lunch. Uh, we're going to make it ahead of time and all that, the elders and, and staff. And we're going to serve that. And then... Um, That'll be our fundraiser to kind of help cover the cost of this event. So we would love it if next week, if you'd plan on sticking around for lunch and uh, helping us support that, have a great meal, support a great cause, and we hope that you'll be at the Harvest Hoedown. So anyways, that is next Sunday. Please plan on eating lunch with us. And it's a great time to not only support a great cause, but just to, to sit down and be able to talk and get to know each other a little bit better. So I think that's all I got as far as announcements go. But again, if you'd fill out that card, uh, we'd love for you to, to know what's going on. Uh, through our announcements throughout the week. Um, you ever heard that phrase um, that when you hit rock bottom, there's only one way to go, and that's up? The problem is you don't always know where the bottom's at, right? I mean, for example, I'm a Bears fan. They won a Super Bowl, and I know you guys get so sick of hearing this. Too bad. You're going to keep hearing about it. Uh, 1985, they won their only, their lone Super Bowl. I was two years old, and I feel like I remember it. I'm sure I don't, but I feel like I do because my parents talked enough about it. My grandparents were from Chicago. My mom, was she grew up in, in Chicago at least for part of her life. And uh, I grew up, I can remember having action figures of, uh, of uh, you know, Richard Dent and uh, J Jim McMahon and, and um, who else? Uh, Singletary, Mike Singletary. Uh, I had those action figures. So I grew up absolutely loving the Chicago Bears, and I still love the Chicago Bears, even though every year they're horrible. And I think that there's been a couple, you know, maybe a couple good years in there, but every year, you know, you think that can't get any worse. It can't get any worse. The only way to go is up, and then somehow they manage to sink even lower than what they were sometimes. But th this is going to be the year. Things are changing. Things are looking up. Uh, that's what I've said for about the last 10. So anyways, 
But on a more serious note, I mean, seriously, if you've ever had a family member, for example, that has dealt with addictions, you're familiar with this thought, you know, that, that once they hit rock bottom, they can only go up. And you think they hit rock bottom, and then somehow they manage to get a little bit lower. And it's, it's heartbreaking. It's frustrating, isn't it? To, to think that somebody's at their lowest point, and then somehow they manage to sink even lower. Well, that is really the story of an entire nation. And that nation is Israel. That is really Israel's story, at least in the book of Judges, is that you think they hit rock bottom, and then somehow they manage to sink just a little bit lower. Last week, we talked about the story of Joshua. And maybe you remember growing up the stories about Moses and how he led God's people out of Egypt. There were the plagues, and, and then they parted the Red Sea. That was Moses. Joshua was the leader that followed up Moses. And he was a heroic leader who actually led the people into the land that God had promised. They were 40 years late because they disobeyed God. And so the first generation, uh, they missed out on their chance to see the promised land. The next generation, 40 years later, entered the promised land. And Joshua was the man who led that. He led them, you know, across the, the, through the river. And uh, he was there when they defeated Jericho, had all these amazing battles. That was Joshua. And as we read the book of Joshua, we realize that, you know, they made some mistakes along the way. Joshua sometimes forgot to seek the will of the Lord, and, and they got crushed in battle. But generally speaking, when we read the book of Joshua, it's pretty positive. And there's some amazing things that happen. And as you read the book of Judges, this is how I describe the book of Judges. It's like Joshua without the good parts. I mean, it's really what the book of Judges is like. It is just like the book of Joshua, sounds just like it, but there's none of the victories, none of the good parts that we read like we do in the book of Joshua. In Joshua, God's people, they learn from their mistakes. But in Judges, they just keep making the same mistake over and over. And there's a phrase in the book of Judges that keeps reappearing. And it's this phrase, over and over again. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You read it over and over and over again in the book of Judges. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So to give you some background on this, uh, you might remember the book of Deuteronomy from the Bible. Deuteronomy is, is basically God's laws that he gives to the people. He says, these are the laws, these are the rules that you're supposed to follow. And some of those rules included, of course, the Ten Commandments that I think most people are familiar with. And the first commandment that God gives to them is, you should have no other gods before me. Don't have any other gods that you put before me. And that is the commandment that the Israelites keep breaking over and over again. And so Judges covers a 480-year period of time where the Israelites continually disobey God. Now we're covering, we're doing this series called The Story, so we're covering like entire books of the Bible with one sermon, which I, I told you last week, uh, we talked about Joshua, and I had a whole sermon series that I did on the book of Joshua, and trying to condense that down into one sermon, that's tough. But we're covering a big span of time, but hopefully the idea is that you kind of get a broad view of Scripture and the story of Scripture. So uh, today we're not going to be, you know, reading entire chapters of the Bible. We're just going to kind of pick verses here and there. And it's not because we're trying to skip over anything or gloss over anything. It's because we don't want to be here for six hours, okay? So we're just going to, we're doing a lot of skipping around. But that's why it's so important for you to read the Bible on your own, for you to know what the Bible says for yourself. So we're uh, going to start here in Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And starting in the, the second half of verse 2, it says, I, 
I brought you up from the land of Egypt, brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. They shall become thorns in your sides. And their gods shall be a snare to you. God made a covenant with them. And he said, you drive these people out. And I'm going to help you do that. But the Israelites refused to do that. And so these people and their gods, that was the main issue. It wasn't because this isn't a race thing. Okay, it's nothing like that. It was the fact that these people were worshiping other gods. And part of their, their worship of other gods, it was horrible. It involved uh, infant sacrifice, child sacrifice. It involved uh, cutting themselves as worship to God. It involved um, uh, sexual acts as worship to their, to their gods. And so th- that's why God says, you are not... Uh, to mingle with these people. You were to drive them out of this land. This land is to be holy and dedicated, and you were to be holy and set apart and dedicated for my use. Now, that sounds pretty selfish, doesn't it? That God would just bless this one group of people. But again, that's why we're doing the story. You've got to keep the big picture in mind. Because what is the promise that God makes to, to the Israelites? He says, everyone will be a blessing because of you. God's vision, God's purpose for the Israelites is to bless Everyone who has ever lived and everyone that will live, if they'll just be faithful to him for the time that he calls them to be faithful to him. But they had a hard time doing that. And so God instructs them to drive out all the people from Canaan. And in chapter 1, if you were to read chapter 1 of Judges on your own, you would read a list of all the people that they failed to drive out of the land. God says, this is what you're supposed to do. And we have a list of all the ways they failed to do what God asked them to do. And so in the book of Judges, the book of Judges, it's, it's really frustrating. If you've ever tried to read it, maybe you kind of got a little bit bored with it because it is literally the same cycle over and over. And it literally happens a dozen times. Twelve times we read the same cycle over and over again. Because they failed to drive out the Canaanites, they begin to worship other gods. That's the first step in the cycle. They were supposed to drive them out, and they didn't do that, so they worshiped other gods. And God delivers them into the hands of the people around them. Because they were disobedient, because they wanted to be like everybody else, God delivers them into the hands of their enemies. And so, of course, they cry out to God, God, where are you? You left us. You don't help us. And God, even though they are unfaithful, is faithful to them. He answers them. And what he does is he raises up a judge to save them. So 12 times this happens. There's 12 judges. Now, what is a judge? Have you thought about that? What is the role of a judge? It's very similar in the Bible is what we think about when we think of a judge. This week, just this week, I sat in a courtroom and, and uh, heard part of a, uh, the judgment on a, on a case. And, and many of you are familiar with that, the tragedy that happened in this town. And uh, it's a heavy place to be, to sit and, and hear a judge render judgment. But a judge just doesn't say you're guilty and here's your punishment. Isn't kind of the whole point of the legal system to prevent evil from happening again? I mean, isn't that why we have laws? We say, okay, this is the law you break, and so this is going to be your punishment. And the whole idea is that hopefully people will learn from that and say, well, I don't want that to happen to me, and so they'll stop doing it. Well, in a lot of ways, that's kind of what the judges do in the Bible. Yes, they deliver God's people, but also it's kind of this reminder that, hey, maybe we shouldn't do this again. Maybe we should learn our lesson. Unfortunately, the Israelites do not. So this cycle repeats over and over again. That's the whole book. And the last verse of the book really sums up the whole problem in the book of Judges. If you were to flip to the very last verse of Judges, you would read something like this. In those days, 
This is uh, Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I don't know how many of you have ever been to Lemoyne Christian Camp, but they have this thing called Walk Through the Bible that they do every year. And uh, it's basically kind of the, I guess, the story, but there's hand motions to help you remember kind of the timeline of the Bible. And that's the whole theme of the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That is really the problem in Judges. That's why they were so slow to learn their lesson, because they were just doing what they wanted to do. Now, maybe you've heard that phrase that says, eyes are the window to the soul. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but that might be right. And what I noticed as I was reading and studying the book of Judges this week is eyes are a common thing in the book of Judges. We read over and over that the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We read here at the end of the book, everyone did what was evil in his own eyes. Or, I'm sorry, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so there's two conflicting perspectives in the book of Judges. And what I want you to know is there are two conflicting perspectives when it comes to life in general. We're making things super simple, really narrowing the Bible down to what it says, and that is this. There is the earthly and the godly. Another way you could say it is there is the temporary and there's the eternal. Two perspectives. And you can choose to look at life through either one of those perspectives, but they're very different. You can either look through life through temporary lenses of the things that are right now but won't last very long, or you can look at life through an eternal lens. The Israelites, they were nearsighted. They needed glasses big time. They only saw what was right in front of them. That was it. They had no long, long-term, long-sightedness or whatever you call that. You know, they, um, they, they had no perspective of the eternal. They only saw what was right in front of them. Even some of their own judges were very nearsighted. One judge, the last one that we're going to talk about, even lost his eyes, his physical sight. Why? Because he really couldn't see past the things of the world. He was so distracted with the things of the world that he actually lost his physical vision. So let's talk a little bit about the judges, okay? Hang with me, okay? Because these are names that, like, we don't use and understand. And uh, some of the Bible says a lot about some of these guys, and some of these guys it really doesn't say anything about, okay? So we're going to run through them, 12 judges. So if you're getting bored, at least you know where we're at. You can check them off, you know. One, two, three. Okay, so number one right here is a man named Othniel. Okay, we don't know a whole lot about him, but this is where the pattern begins. The Israelites, they served Baal and Asherahs, and so God delivered them into the hands of their enemies for eight years. Othniel was the judge that God rose up, brought up to deliver them. But now we get to a really good story, okay? Some of these are way more interesting than others. Now, some of you, I know, and you'd never admit this because you're a good person, you might be tempted to think that the Bible is boring. You try to sit down and read it, and you just think, this is really boring. I'm not getting anything out of this. I'm telling you, the Bible is anything but boring. If you are a junior high boy or a high school boy, you are going to love this next story. Parents, you might not love this story. Just remember, this is not my story. This is what the Bible says, so have your earmuffs ready for your kids if you don't want them to hear this. This is not G-rated, some of this stuff in Judges, just to warn you. And so here's the story of a man named Ehud. And this is an awesome story. It's a violent, really disgusting story, but it's kind of cool. Now, how many of you in here are left-handed? Raise your left hand super high so everybody knows that you're left-handed. All right, so we've got a few of you in here, a few of you. All right. <laughs> Okay, now if you were left-handed in Old Testament times, that would be a bad deal. That was kind of like a curse. That was not a good thing. People didn't think much of you. Typically, if you were left-handed, that was thought to be a curse. 
That's why I love the book of Judges. Because Judges reminds us that God uses flawed people. That God uses people that other people think aren't really that important. Ehud was a left-handed man. It might not seem like a big deal to us, but it is. And you know what? It's the fact that he's left-handed that makes him successful as a judge. What happens is there is a king of Eglon. He's an evil king. He's also very fat, we read. Super fat guy. I can relate to that. And so he was the evil king of Eglon. And uh, anyways, uh, God rose up, uh, brought up Ehud to, to be judge. And so what he did was he was uh, a left-handed man. Now, people in this day, usually they're right-handed, so they would strap their sword to their left thigh so they could pull it out, you know. Ehud was left-handed, so he strapped his sword to his right side. So Ehud goes to the, the door, knocks on the door. I doubt this is how it happened, but this is just what we'll say. Comes to the door, and he says, hey, I've got a message for the king. And they say, okay. And they search him. And so, of course, they search his left side. But they fail to search his right side because most people weren't left-handed. And so he goes into the palace, and he has a sword this entire time. And he says, King Ehud, I have a, a message for you. And he, Ehud says, okay, come closer. He pulls out a sword, and he thrusts it into his belly. This is the gross part. He was so fat that Ehud couldn't pull the sword out. He just had to leave it there. It says the fat, this is, again, this is not my story. The fat enclosed around the handle of the sword, he couldn't even pull it out. Some of you are like, oh, brother. Like I said, there's worse to come, and I'm sorry about this, but this is what it says. So anyways, he couldn't pull the sword out, and then it also says, and then his dung came out. So I don't know what that's about, but that is the story of Ehud. Super gross story. It's not done yet. So Ehud escapes out of the palace. Read it for yourself. It's in the book of Judges. Ehud escapes out of the palace. And here's the funny, the last funny part of this, or gross part. If you're a mom, you'll think it's gross. If you're a junior high kid, you probably think it's awesome. But they waited. They thought Ehud was going to the bathroom. And it says that they waited until the point of embarrassment. That's what the Bible says. Finally, they go in and they see the evil king, Eglon, and he's dead. So God rose up a man like Ehud to judge the people who had taken his people captive. Okay, Shamgar is not nearly as cool as Ehud, at least the story. He did kill a bunch of Philistines with a cattle prod or an axe goad, but uh, that's basically all we know about him. Then we go on to Deborah. Now, if you're into, like, the girl power thing, you will love Deborah. It's an awesome story. She was an awesome lady. People would come to Deborah, and she sat under a palm tree, smart lady, sat under a palm tree, and people would come to her, and they would ask her for judgment, and she would pass judgment on certain cases. And so Deborah uh, calls a man named Barak to her presence, and she says, Hey, don't forget that, the God, that God has called you to go to war with Sisera. Sisera was the commander of Jabin's army. Now, don't worry about I know that when you hear names, you're just like, your mind just kind of like turns off, okay? Don't worry about the names. It doesn't matter. The point is this, that Barak was supposed to go to war with the enemies of God. That's the main point. Okay, so he was supposed to go to war against Sisera, the evil king, or the evil leader of the evil army. And uh, so it's really funny because in the story, Barak says, I'll go, but only if you go with me, Deborah. He won't go by himself. This is the commander of an army, and he's like, I'll go, but you got, you got to come with me, which I love that. And she's like, that's fine. And it literally says this in the Bible. She says, but just so you know, if I go with you, everybody's going to know that sister was delivered into the hand of a girl. That's what it says right here. It's an awesome story. She goes, you're not going to get any credit. Everybody's going to know uh, that, that this was God's doing through me. Awesome girl power story, but it's not over yet, and it's super violent too. So anyways, that's exactly what happened. They go, and Barak defeats Sisera's army, but Sisera, Sisera manages to escape. 
and he goes into a, a tent of Jael. Now, he had peace with Jael's husband, but you ever, your wife and you sometimes not always on the same page? Has that ever happened? No, you guys are always on the same page all the time, husbands, wives. Well, J.L. and apparently uh, her husband were not on the same page because uh, this man, Sisera, had peace with her husband, but apparently uh, J.L. didn't think much of him. So she says, hey, Sisera, I'll keep you safe. Come into my tent. And so he comes in there. She says, you want some milk? And gives him some milk. And she's like, hey, lay under this mat. I'll keep you safe. He lays under the mat. Then she casually goes into the kitchen or wherever, the garage, pulls out a tent peg and a hammer and drives the tent peg into Sisera's head and kills him. Girl power. <laughs> Violent story. So that is, that's Deborah. That's one of the judges. So ladies, I guess, teach your girls about Deborah. She's an awesome lady. Okay, but here's the guy who really is like the headliner, you know, of this, of this whole book. Well, one of two, I guess. But there's Gideon. Now maybe you've heard of Gideon. He's pretty popular in the Bible. He gets a lot of attention. But what we don't know about Gideon is we kind of know him as this mighty warrior because when we learn stories, if you grew up in church, and I know not all of you did, but if you did, you know, you were raised thinking Gideon was this mighty warrior and so courageous. He was a coward. As a matter of fact, when we first meet Gideon, you know what? The angel comes to him, and you know what he's doing? The Midianites, it says they were their enemies of God, and it says they were like locusts. There were so many of them. You ever have like Asian beetles? Every year I forget to treat my rose bushes, and the Asian beetles completely consume them. They're like gone. I don't even know why I bother. I should just cut them down. Every year that happens, and that's kind of what the Midianites are compared to. They come in, and they, it says they dry up the rivers because they drink so much. They eat up all the food. I mean, they just terrorized the, the Israelites. They were stealing out of their fields everything. So uh, it says when we first meet Gideon, an angel comes to him, and you know what he's doing? He's treading out grain in a wine press. The reason, now that might not strike you as odd, but that's not what a wine press is for. And we learned that the reason why he was doing that is because he was scared. He didn't want to be seen by the Midianites, so he's hiding. He's not a great warrior, at least not at first. And then the, his cowardice kind of continues. Uh, the angel says, hey, you're going to deliver God's people out of their hands. And he starts making excuses. He says, hey, my family is the weakest in the tribe of Manasseh. Now, somebody tell me, how many tribes are there? There were 12 tribes. And I'm trying to go back so we can kind of keep all this straight, okay? The 12 tribes of Israel, those were Joseph and his brothers, right? Each of them, uh, there were 12 brothers, 12 descendants. And uh, so each of them became a tribe. And so by this time, there's you know, millions of Hebrews, uh, but they're organized into tribes. So he's from the tribe of Manasseh. That was one of the brothers of Joseph. He says, my family is the weakest in all the tribe of Manasseh. Not only that, but in my family, I'm the weakest. So he's the weakest of the weak, not the strongest of the strong. And uh, so after that, the angel insists. He says, no, you are the person to do this. This is the whole point. This cannot be you doing it. This has to be God. Yeah, you are the weakest of the weak, but God's going to use you. And everybody's going to know that it wasn't you and your power that did it. It was God's. So the story continues. He's still kind of reluctant. And there's this story, and we use this sometimes. We say, well, I'm going to pray about it. I'm going I'm to put out a fleece, pray about it. Ryan, we've talked about this recently. And uh, this is where this comes from. And what happens is Gideon, he says, well, I really want to make sure this is from the Lord. He didn't. He was just scared and was hoping that God would give up. And so um, he says, I tell you what. I'm going to put a fleece out on the ground, and if it's wet and the ground is dry, 
That'll tell me that this is God's plan. Sure enough, the next morning he goes out, the ground is wet, the fleece is dry. The day after that, I might have these out of order, but you get the point. Next day he goes out and he says, okay, if the, the fleece is dry but the ground is wet, then I'll know that this is from the Lord. So he does it again. Now, he wasn't just trying to confirm to make sure that he was doing God's will. He already knew that. An angel had come to him, but he was a reluctant leader. He was a coward. He didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. To his credit, he eventually did. And in the, the story of Gideon, we hear the story about the original 300. I don't know if you've heard about the 300 Spartans or maybe you've seen the movie 300. Uh, but this is the original 300. Now, the Midianites outnumbered uh, the Israelites by a lot. Their soldiers did. I want to say it was like 250,000 to 32,000. And even though they are outnumbered, God said to Gideon, uh, you've got too many soldiers. I'm going to need you to, to, uh, to kind of pare that down a little bit. So he goes to the soldiers and he says, I tell you what, I know some of you are scared to go against Midian because we're outnumbered. So I tell you what, if you're scared to go into battle, you can go home. And the majority of them do. 12,000 of them go home. Is my math right there? No. Excuse me, 22,000 of them go home. 10,000 were left. God still says, uh, 25 to 1, uh, you still got too many soldiers. I need you to pare your army down even more. So they go to a river, and God says, whoever takes, has the spear in their hand and takes water in their hand and brings it up to their mouth, those are the men that you were supposed to keep, that you were going to fight this war with. 300 men were left. So these 300 men go to war, and God gives them the, uh, the battle strategy. He says, I want you to take a torch. Every man's supposed to have a torch. Put a clay pot over it. I want you to have a horn in your hand. I want you to surround the Midianite camp. And at the changing of the guard, they took, they crashed the clay pots. And so their enemy saw the torches, and they blew the horns. And it said that God threw them into confusion so much that they started to kill one another. And then they fled. They were scared. So with 300 men, Gideon, God, defeated the Midianite army. Awesome story. We're skipping a lot. There's a lot of good stuff in there. But then there's Tola and J.R. We don't know a thing about them. Those are two other judges. There's Jephthah. Uh, we don't know a whole lot about him except that he's the son of a prostitute. Again, God uses unlikely people to accomplish his will. We also know that he made a grave mistake. He made a vow to the Lord. He said, God, if you give me victory, I'm going to give you this. And it was a horrible mistake. It's, it's hard to explain, so you can read it for yourselves. Uh, but an awful mistake. And he didn't have to do that. God would have given him the victory anyways. But he made a vow to God, and he had to live up to it. Then there's uh, Ibsen, Elon, and Abdon. And then finally, doesn't say much about them. Finally, we come to the last judge. If you're checking off the list, get this last one here. Samson. How many of you grew up knowing the story of Samson and admiring Samson? Yeah, I mean, to me as a, as a young man, I love the story of Samson because he was strong. And I mean, what, what like boy doesn't look up to somebody who's strong? But now as an adult, I realize that the story of Samson is very different. Samson, yeah, he had some physical strength, but man, he was weak, wasn't he? He was a really weak man. We read the story uh, about how his mother was barren. She wasn't able to have children up to this point. And an angel comes, and it's very similar to what we read when the angel comes to talk to Mary. But anyways, uh, an angel comes to talk to Samson's mother and says, you're going to have a son. And your son has a special purpose. I want you to, to, have, to take a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow meant that they couldn't consume alcohol, they couldn't cut their hair, and they could not, what was the other thing, couldn't touch anything dead. That was part of the Nazarite vow. I think Samson broke all of them eventually. 
Well, what happened is Samson ended up, as he grew up, he married a Philistine. He was strong because of this Nazarite vow. But he ended up marrying a Philistine. A lot of people don't know this, and she was killed. And so then uh, he meets this prostitute named Delilah. And the Philistines, the enemies of God, hire Delilah. They say, hey, we're going to give you money if you can find out how it is that Samson is so strong. Samson messes with her a few times. He says, oh, this is what gives me strength, or this is what gives me strength, and it doesn't work. And finally, she breaks him down, and finally Samson says, it's my hair. I've never cut my hair. A razor has never touched my head. If I cut my hair, I will lose my strength. She hires a man to come in. They cut his hair. She says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you, as she had said three times earlier, two or three times earlier. And he gets up, and before he was able to get out of there and, and, and defeat the Philistines, but this time, this is a really telling, really heartbreaking part of Scripture. It says, the Lord, had, he didn't know that the Lord had left him. Oh. See, this is the first time that Samson had broken his vow, and God always stayed with him. Even though he wasn't faithful to God, God had been faithful. But this time it says the Lord left him. So Samson was taken captive by the Philistines, and it says that they put out his eyes. And I, I, for the first time, I noticed the irony of that, especially when you consider all the story of Judges, that everybody did what was right in their own eyes, that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And because Samson was so nearsighted and could only focus his eyes on the things of the world, guess what ended up happening to him? He lost his physical sight. So uh, what happens is uh, they bring Samson out. They, they're in the temple. They bring Samson out to make fun of him. And he says, I need to rest against these pillars. And uh, so they chain him to these pillars, and he prays to God. He says, God, give me strength one last time so I can avenge myself to these Philistines. And God gives him strength, and he pushes on the pillars, and the temple collapses on itself. And all the Philistines and Samson are killed. It's a very depressing end to the book, end of the life of Samson. And I wish I could say that things get better from there, that they hit rock bottom and started to go up, but they don't. We read in the rest of this book that priests are bribed, that even this, the grandsons of Moses himself set up idols for people to worship. And we think after reading the book of, Josh, of uh, Judges, you know, where's the good part? Where, where's the happily ever after there really doesn't seem to be one, at least not first. And we think, how did things get so bad? Well, we read about it in Judges chapter 2, a couple verses I want to read. First, verse 12, and the next verse, 22. Hey, I almost forgot to say something about this. Some of you I've never seen before. Thank you for being here. We're glad you're here. But I also want to tell you something. We have these books. Hold them up if you got them, the story. Hold them up, somebody. Hold them up. Hold it up. Yeah, there we go. There's a couple of them. We got these books called The Story. That's the series that we're going through right now. And we have these books called The Story. And what it is is it's, it's excerpts. It's parts. It's not the whole Bible, okay? Don't let this replace your Bible. I say it every week. I'm going to keep saying it. But what this is is this is kind of the, the big points of the Bible. It's so that we can understand the big picture of the Bible. If you don't have one of those, those are available right out here at our Welcome Center. Grab one. They're free. Don't worry about it. Please take it home and read it. We're, we're going to start Chapter 9 next week, so you've got some catching up to do, but it won't take you long. So please get a hold of one of those. And I hope everybody else is reading those if you have them at home. But anyways, Judges chapter 2, verse 12, and then verse 22. How did things get so bad? Right here. They abandoned the Lord. The God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. 
and they provoked the Lord to anger. Verse 22, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. That was God testing them. See, the Israelites failed to pass the test of their commitment to God. They failed to pass on their faith to the next generation. And we read it, there's, it's commanded right there in Deuteronomy. Chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Listen here. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them while you sit in your house, while you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. They didn't do that. How could they fail? Consider what we know about the Israelites. Even if you've never read the Bible before, if you've been in this series, you've learned some things about what God has done. I mean, they, they crossed rivers and seas on dry land because God did it. They ate and drank in the desert when nobody else could because God did that. God guided them through the desert with a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. God did that directly for these people. And yet they failed to tell the next generation about the one true God. They didn't follow God, the next generation. And, you know, as I was thinking about this sermon, I was thinking, man, what am I going to talk about? Because Judges is very similar to Joshua. I mean, it's a story of unlikelies. And I thought, what am I going to talk about? And this is what jumped out at me about this story. And the reason why it jumped out at me is because I wondered, man, have we failed in the same area? Are we failing in the same area as the Israelites? Are we being faithful in teaching the next generation about the one true God? Are we doing that or not? I mean, are people, you know, 300 years from now, even 100 years from now, are they going to be able to say the same things that we read about the Israelites? You know what I'm saying? Are people going to say, hey, they were faithful in teaching the next generation about God? Or could they say, now they failed. They didn't, they didn't teach their kids about God. What will they say about us? There's a lot of people that look around and they say that the church appears to be losing ground in America. And according to the numbers, that certainly seems to be the case. Every year, less and less people claim to be Christians. Now, in my mind, we really aren't losing ground. I think what's happening is it's become less and less popular to be a Christian. For a long time, it's been very easy to claim that title Christian, and now it's not so popular anymore, and so people aren't so apt to claim that title. Does that make sense? So it makes sense that less and less people are saying that they're Christians. It's not as easy as it once was. But here's the good news. I don't know if you've heard about the things that are going on in the church in China. Did you know that China, I mean, it's a, communism has wreaked havoc on that country, okay? It's very dangerous to be a Christian in China. I can remember as a kid learning about people smuggling Bibles into China because you're not supposed to have them. They would love to do what you and I do here every Sunday morning. We can barely drag our butts out of bed sometimes to be here, but you know what these people do is on Sunday morning they meet in a basement huddled in secret and they have to keep their voices down so that they're not heard. So it's very different when you think about the church there and the church here. And so, but the church in China, even though they're so oppressed, it's growing. They've even got big churches now. But I don't know if you heard just last week, their government passed more laws, making it even more difficult to be a Christian in China. But you know what? The church is going to continue to grow because when people see that, that there's somebody that's worth making a sacrifice or something they really believe in, they know that it's true. And I think that's what we're paying for here in this country is that it's been very easy to call yourself a Christian, but mark my words, there will come a day where it's not so easy, where we will have to make the choice, do I really believe what I say I believe in or not? And that time will come. 
Maybe not in your lifetime or my lifetime or a kid's lifetime, but eventually that will come in this place, that it will not be easy anymore. We don't need to be scared because we know where we're going to be eternally, but I guess we do need to understand that at some point we are going to have to make a hard choice. So why is it that the church seems to be losing ground in America? Again, I don't think it really is. I think just people are really coming to grips with whether or not they believe. But we know that the message hasn't changed. We certainly know that God hasn't changed. I think it's because of what we read here in this book over and over again. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It isn't that what we see in the world around us, that everybody just kind of does what they feel like is right. I mean, how many times does somebody say, well, I feel that or I think that or, I mean, whatever you think or feel sometimes you say, well, that's right. That's not what we believe. We believe there is a source of truth whether we like it or not. There is truth. But I think sometimes we, even as Christians, are a little too nearsighted. Now, let me preface this statement by saying this. I'm so proud of so many parents um, that I see that are making commitments. And some of them are brand new. It's just recent, you know, that they, they realize that I need to take faith seriously for my kids. And a lot of people I've seen, they step away from faith in college, and they come back to it because they see the importance when they have kids. And I'm really proud as I look around and I see young parents and, and, and people who, uh, you know, their kids are grown and long gone out of the house, but they were still faithful to raising kids in godly homes. So I think there are some great things going on in this church, but I think we also need to have kind of a gut check time. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been to the, the doctor or surgeon and they say, or the dentist, and they say, you know, this might hurt a little bit. This might hurt a little bit. You see, sometimes we can find time to, to uh, watch TV programs, but we struggle to find the time to read the Word. We wouldn't dare let our kids quit in the middle of something, a 4-H project, a sports team, a club. We wouldn't dare let them miss a practice. We don't seem to have any issue when it comes to missing church or youth group or something like that. We spend a lot of our time and our energy focusing on providing physically and financially for our family. How often do we think about how we're providing spiritually for our family? We make sure that our kids know the playbook. Do they know how to read the Bible? Have you ever done that with them? Kids know how to throw a spiral or block for a quarterback or catch a ball. They know the playbook, you know, backwards and forwards, but do they know how to talk to God? Have you taught them that? They know the importance of hard work and working for their money and saving, but do they know how to build their treasure in heaven? You see, when we start thinking, uh, this is gut check time, we can say that we are eternally minded, but I'm saying when you look at your actions and what you're doing with your time and the, the, the things that you have with your kids, are you investing them in it for a short amount of time? Are you investing in their eternity? Because it seems like so many parents are focused on things that really aren't going to last more than 5, 10 15 years, things that certainly aren't going to live, outlive their life here on earth. So, man, as parents, if we want to do what's best for our kids, doesn't it make sense for us to invest in their eternity and not just the here and now? But sometimes we're a little too nearsighted. So I think there's a lot that we can learn from the parents of the judges. That's what I looked at. What really jumped out at me when I was reading the book of Judges is the parents of the people that were mentioned and how different they were. And the, the first thing is this. The first thing is uh, don't let your spiritual background um, be an excuse for you not following God. What I mean by that is look at Gideon. His dad built an altar to Baal, built an Asherah. 
But Gideon, because God called him, went against his father. He didn't use it as an excuse. And we need to take responsibility for our spiritual growth. None of this, well, my dad or my mom didn't teach me. I understand that, and I sympathize with that. But at some point, we have to take responsibility for ourselves. That's one reason I, I have a lot of reasons why I admired my, my wife. That's one of the reasons I really admire my wife. I don't know how much you know about her story, but she has a story to tell. And I, I know someday she will do that. And um, some of you have heard, um, excuse me, uh, excuse me. Bits and pieces, I should, I should learn my lesson, shouldn't I? You can't talk about family. It chokes you up every single time. Kevin, you've been there with me, man. I mean, we <laughs> both made that mistake. Can't talk about family. Uh, anyways, but she's got a story to tell, awesome story to tell, and someday she's going to tell it. Um, but anyways, um, you know, she grew up in a, in a home where she didn't have a spiritual background. Uh, luckily, she had youth sponsors and, and people that kind of brought her up, and, and she has taken spiritual responsibility of herself, and she's one of the most faithful Christians I know to this day. Um, should have never done that. Now I don't know where I'm at. Um, woo. Come on, Nate. Okay, there we go. But uh, I guess, uh, you know, another lesson we learned. So first of all, we got to take responsibility for ourselves, okay? Uh, the other thing is it's never too late to change. You know, that's one of the stories I love about it. It kind of helped. It helped after you said that. Um, he stood up. Um, Gideon's father, even though he wasn't following God faithfully, did you notice that he, well, you probably didn't notice because you maybe haven't read the story, but if you read the story, you learn that his father stood up for him. I, I missed this part of the story, but what happened is another cowardly thing that Gideon did was God said, hey, I want you to tear down the Asherah poles in, in, the, in the altar to Baal. And so he did it. The funny thing was he did it at night. <laughs> He's like, yeah, I'm not doing that during the day. So at night he tears down these things, and they come out the next morning and they say, who did this? And they said, let's talk to, to Gideon's father. And what I love about it is Gideon's father, who set up the altar, and Asher says, you know what? If Baal's a real God, why don't you let Baal stick up, stick up for himself? I love that. His dad stuck up for him. It's never too late. And uh, so, you know, what I want to tell you is, as I was reading those things and talking about, man, are we spiritual examples for our family or not? Maybe you, as I was reading that, that was painful for you because you realize, man, I have not been a spiritual example. It's never too late to change, to turn to decide to do something different. But another warning I want to issue to you is this, that there are no promises. Samson had good parents, didn't he? Godly parents. And yeah, he ended up being a judge, but he, he wasn't an especially strong one. But in the end, he was still faithful to God. So an encouragement I want to give to you is this, never give up on your kids. And not just your kids. When I talk about kids, this is the thing. Because you might be sitting here thinking, I don't have kids, and so maybe you checked out a long time ago. It's not just your physical kids, okay? I'm just talking about the next ge generation in general. You know, uh, if you're a teacher, if you've got grandkids, I mean, it doesn't matter who it is, but I'm saying we have a responsibility. You know, even kids that come to this church, we have a responsibility to teach the next generation about God. Don't give up on them. Don't write them off. You never know when things can turn around. But, man, let this never be true of us. That the next generation doesn't know go about God because of our failure. That our kids chose not to follow because they were too nearsighted. I hope that can never be said about us because we're so focused on eternity. We all have a responsibility to tell the next generation about God. And they had story after story about what God had done for them, but yet they failed to share it. 
And so I think what's so important for us to remember as believers is that we ought to have that story too of how we began to follow God, about what God has done to us, for us, how God has been faithful to us. And we need to share that story with our kids, with other people we know. Uh, We need to tell people this is who God is and this is how I know and this is what he's done in my life. That's our responsibility. Because, man, if we fail to do that, we're just like the Israelites. And as we look at the book of Judges, we say, you know, where's the good part? (laughs) There really isn't one. There's not like, oh, that's really, you know, I mean, there's just not a whole lot of good stuff that goes on, at least not on the surface. But what really struck me again about this story, I'm going to wrap up here in a second, is that as Samson's birth was being foretold, it sounds identical to Jesus' birth being foretold. And that's what I realized in the, this cycle of sin and failure, really in and of itself is the good news. Because the book of Judges is really a story about our failure, about how we cannot do things on our own absent from Jesus. And so you see, the, the book of Judges points to Jesus and our need for him and his, his sacrifice for us. So that is the, the bad news in this book is the good news because it points to Jesus Christ. And it's only through him that we're saved that we have salvation. That's the good news of Judges. It takes a while to get there, doesn't it? But thank God that we are on the other side of it. You know, these people, they didn't know about Jesus yet. Yeah, they knew the prophecies about the Messiah, but they didn't know Jesus. Man, what a blessing for us to live during a time where we know about Jesus. We know about the hope that he offers. And yeah, these people, they knew about God, but they failed to tell other people, let us not make the same mistake. To tell other people about the one true God, to tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. And it needs to start with the people in our family. The next generation. But if you are only focusing your eyes, if your eyes are fixed on the things that won't outlive your life, you need a new perspective. More of a long-term perspective. My challenge for you this week is to think about your life, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you, you know, just what you think about. I want you to think about how many of those things are focused on things that will outlive you. And how many of those things will only last as long as you're here on earth? I want you to think about that this week. Anytime you make a decision, whatever you do, I want you to think how much is focused on just this life and how much goes beyond this life. Let's say a prayer. God, we thank you for this day. We're thankful, Lord, that even though in our faithfulness you continue to remain faithful to us, even though we do not deserve it, Lord. We're thankful for your grace that you show to us that you... um, You're merciful to to us, Lord, that you always give us a way out. We see that in the Israelites. Lord, we can relate. We make mistake after mistake, but yet you still take us back every single time. We're so thankful for that. We know, Lord, that it's because of your son Jesus that we have grace and mercy. Because you held nothing back from us, uh, we have the, the means to be saved. But it's only through him. So, Lord, I just pray that as we consider our lives, I pray that we won't make the same mistake as the Israelites, but, Lord, that we will focus not on just what's happening here and now, but that we, we will be focused on eternity and what will happen. I pray, Lord, that we will invest in our kids and our grandkids in this next generation so that they know the one true God. I pray, Lord, as we share with them that we share about our relationship, not just, you know, facts, but we share about what you've done how we've seen you in our lives. 
Lord, if we can't tell that story, I pray that we will, that we'll think about that, that we will have a genuine relationship with you. It's your name I pray, amen. Let's stand together, and uh, we're going to sing a song of invitation. My invitation to you is just to, to consider your relationship with Jesus. First of all, do you have one? I'm not saying do you know facts about the Bible. I'm saying that unless you have a real relationship with God, you know, you can try to force your kids to read the Bible and force them to go to church and force them to do all these things, but, man, unless you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that's going to be tough going. And chances are they're probably going to turn from it and rebel. It starts with you having a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. That starts with a commitment to him and just saying, God, I'm going to do things your way, even when it doesn't make sense. Because let's face it, in the Old Testament, there's a lot of times it doesn't make sense, does it? God's going to call you to do things that don't make sense, things that are uncomfortable, things that look different from what the world would have you do. But if you choose to say, God, I'm going to do things your way, I'm going to rely on your son, Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, he will show you a life that is beyond just this place. I don't know if you have a relationship with Jesus today, but if you don't, I want to invite you to think about that. And not just think about that, to act and say, you know what, I do want to do things God's way. I do want to commit my life to him. I do want to commit, and I don't know what that looks like yet, but I want to know. If that's a commitment you need to make today, I want to invite you to do that. We're going to sing a song of invitation this morning. And I want to invite you into relationship with Jesus Christ. And that usually starts with just making a commitment to him, saying, God, I want to follow you. That's where it starts. That's the first step. I know it seems too easy, doesn't it? Very simple. Not easy, but simple. I want to invite you to pray that, to say, I do want to follow you. I want to invite you to talk to somebody about it. We've got elders here in this church, good, godly men that are trying their best to follow Jesus, that have a relationship with God. They would love to talk to you about it. I'd love to talk to you about it. You know, the, in the old days, you used to come down front, you know, when you need to make a decision. A lot of people are like, I don't want to do that. But, man, if that's something you need to do, we invite you to do whatever it is. But I just want to invite you to take a step towards Jesus. I don't know what that looks like for you today. But if you feel like something's tugging on your heart, I'd encourage you, go to one of these guys in the back of the room. Walk this way. I'll meet you up here. We'd love to talk with you and pray with you about that. But I want to invite all of you, if you do have a relationship with Jesus Christ, man, don't keep it to yourself. Tell your kids, your grandkids, if you live long enough, your great-grandkids, you know, about the one true God. Let's sing the song together. Before he spoke.